Hi, Tisha. Hey, Jen. How's it going? It's good. I am so excited that we had the opportunity to speak with Fallon Farinacci. Oh my gosh. She was so fantastic and she's just, she's goals, man. She really is. And (laughs) it was such an amazing conversation and we all got on so well that we just dove right into our topic without even doing a proper introduction. No. It was so interesting because she kind of started out as we got on the call. She's like, so tell me about you guys. Yes. So we kind of just started in that way and just kind of naturally flowed into the conversation with her. We'll let Fallon tell her story, which is so important during Indigenous History Month, especially with everything that's going on in the news right now with the residential schools. Really highlighting Mm -hmm. our Indigenous communities is so incredibly important. You're listening to Now What, a podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. I think I stumbled across your Instagram. You had shared something and I was like, wow, she is the embodiment of what we want. She has this story that happened to her that she's really been able to turn into something meaningful mm-hmm. and to use her voice to you know connect people and to try to really make a difference in the world yeah it's like meaningful on like a grand scale like I think yes. you know we all like on a visibly grand scale anyway you know like it's it's more public than than a lot of the other people we've ta- talked to and not to minimize it at all like anybody's story but mm-hmm. um, that's only because I've shared um social media. Yeah. And for some people we're like the first platform that they're sharing on. Right. Right. And it's, we're kind of the first opportunity that they've had to really share their story. And then for other people, such as yourself, you've told your story quite a few times. Yeah. I love the power of stories. Yeah. We really would like to talk about you and, and your story. So I did touch on a little bit that you obviously you had a story and that you've been able to turn that into something really meaningful. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe take us through a bit about your story and how that has shaped you into the remarkable person that you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Fallon Farinacci. My traditional name is White Thunder Woman. That was given to me really only after my healing journey began that I knew it had to begin. Obviously it happened a long time ago, but it started really truly only once I started journeying with the national inquiry. And so my spirit name that was given to me by an elder and Anishinaabe elder in my home territory in Treaty 1, just outside of Winnipeg, uh, means that I have, uh, that I'm going to be loud. That so, uh, white thunder woman means that I'm I'm here to make noise, and so yeah. once he told me that, I was like, okay, I better live up to this this pretty big name. Okay. Uh, and recently, I actually heard an elder who has a very similar name. Hers is Thunder Woman, and she explained it as. Um, for about the thunder beings and so within her culture the thunder beings being that we have a message Um, and so when I heard that I was like wow I'm going to totally cling on to that as well because there is a message to be told right and so Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so um, that's my traditional name. I'm originally from Winnipeg, or not Winnipeg, my goodness, my community would be so upset with me, just mm-hmm. west of Winnipeg, which the big joke is everything is west of Winnipeg. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a little town called St. Estash, um, predominantly a Métis community. So I am Métis, and as a very proud Métis a man, my my father, his name is Morris. He taught me to be proud of my my heritage. My my father was the president for our Southwest Division for the Manitoba Metis Federation. So yeah. um, that's the Saint Estache local. I actually have the shirt on. Oh, I love Woo! it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So our Saint Estache local, the MMF. I grew up there. I was born and raised in this little community. I lived there until the age of nine. Uh, just before my ninth birthday, I don't actually know, and I'm, I'm only starting to think about asking family members this part of it. I don't know how long before this point, everything started to unfold. So in November of 1992, I would have been eight still at that time. My mother's and my father's mutual friend, he had increasingly grew obsessed with my mom and he's always been a troubled person at that time so much so that my parents would have him over for dinner my parents had him over for dinner before all of this because trying to you know really help him and uh, they even had him over for dinner with the priest from our community genuinely trying to just help him in whatever way they can Now, I will say as things continue to unfold, for me personally, I don't believe that my father would feel the same way about having a priest there for those reasons. So this is in 93. So I am not saying that this is something that I would believe that would be something that I would follow now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if that's your your choice, that's your choice. I I don't um, shame anyone for that. But I'm just saying that for me as things continue to unfold in Canada. Um, this month. Right. Yeah. And so we would have him over. He gave me gifts. Like he was a part of our life and uh, he just became obsessed with my mom. His birthday came up and my parents actually went to another birthday in Winnipeg and uh, he got really upset and he called my parents and he threatened them. And he told my mother that she would not live to see her next birthday. And so um, because she wouldn't live to see her next birthday, he said that he wouldn't either. That night, my mother called the RCMP because she was genuinely concerned for her life. Um, He was threatening to kill her. They called the RCMP and they came to our community to take a statement. I remember this. I was actually at my aunt's house when they came to take the statement. Um, because my mom was so scared, they le- we left our house and we went across the field to my aunt's house. Uh, and then I remember the RCMP there wasn't scared. I was never, ever scared. My parents did a really good job at just telling me, if anything ever happens, you call the police and you let them know that you're Morris Paul's daughter. Uh, my father was a volunteer firefighter for our community. And I mean, our communities were really small, so they wanted, he just knew, like, just tell them that. 
also now thinking back is because they had a restraining order as well. So my father would know that they would know that our, like our name, our family's name, right? And so then the next month in December, oh, I should say that evening, my mother did make a complaint, um, a file, sorry, a complaint that he had a 22 caliber rifle. The RCMP never brought that to the judge that evening. So he was released on bail and they never searched his home, even though he had a restraining order against him. He uttered threats, death threats, and they never searched his home or anything. Um, and then also never seized weapons, which that would be part of it as well. They would also say like that now, like from, from knowing from the court documents, they should have also said, you know, um, to, uh, not consume alcohol or drugs, but nothing like that was put on him that evening. Yeah. It sounds like they just kind of brushed it off, maybe talked to him and said, okay, leave them alone and on your way. Yeah, exactly what happened. Yeah. And that night that I would assume it would be that night that judge had filed that whole case in family court and not um, criminal Criminal court. court. Wow. The proceedings were also done differently. Right. So then come December, my mother wrote another note to she, sorry, not another one. She wrote a note to the RCMP. Now the RCMP for everyone listening, it's about 40 minutes from our little community. And so that's the closest one from our community to us. There is another one, 20 minutes, but that wouldn't be the one that would normally be dispatched or 20, 25 minutes. We're kind of in the middle of, of each of them. And so um, we, my mother had wrote a note to the, that uh, Headingley department, the RCMP department, to once again tell them her concerns. This time she was also concerned that he had a revolver. Again, nothing went forward with. And yeah, so then in January, uh, this is the beginning of January, my parents and um, this man were supposed to receive court documents. My mother received his and he received my mother's by accident. The clerk who was working uh, was just a temp. And so she filed them wrong. So my mother had received all of his and he had received all of hers. So like all the problems that she had been having. With him, like anything she had said, all of her things. Went to yeah. his. Yeah, exactly. So uh, my family believes at that point, she had lost all faith in the system because then they had a mediation day that was scheduled for later that month. It was on the 26th of January and my mother never showed up and neither did my father, neither of them went. And no one knows why. Um, And he went and then he was released that day. He consumed a lot of drugs prescription drugs. This is all, everything I'm saying is not me, you know, someone saying this in our community, this is all unraveled after there, there is, there was an inquiry afterwards. And so he had been consuming um, drugs and alcohol. Uh, He was drinking bottles of sherry. My mother's name was sherry. Yeah. So it was, it was deep and, and sick at this point. 
And not to say none of nothing else wasn't sick about what was being done and said from him. And uh, he told several people, he had actually even told people leading up to that day in the community, like, I'm going to kill her. I can't live without her. And uh, that night, he, what my grandmother has always said, he kept his promise. He made good on his promise, she would always say. And he came to our house. And my older brother was expecting a friend to come over. So my older brother opened the door and he held the gun, the exact 22 caliber that my mother had complained about twice um, to my brother's stomach and told him if he screamed, he would kill him. And so he brought my brother inside and brought him to the basement, tied him up. And that was about 1230. So they were down there for quite a long time. They were down there for two hours while everyone else was sleeping in the house. So upstairs is my dad and my mom. And I was in my room and my younger brother was in his room. My younger brother at the time had just turned five, four days prior. And And how old is your older brother? My older brother's 17 at this time. My mom was 36 and my dad was 37 and I'm nine. And so he had my brother write a suicide note. He had then tied up my brother, um, told my brother, like verbally tortured him, how he was going to kill my father, how he was going to kill my mother, that he was going to kill himself. He couldn't live without them. And so at just about quarter after two, he told my brother he was going upstairs and he said, I'm going upstairs to do the deed. And so he went upstairs and my brother heard at that time, my brother already started to um, untie himself mm-hmm. and he heard the gunshot. And so then he quickly started to untie himself and he actually climbed out of his bedroom window, like up in the top corner. And then at that time I woke up. And so when I woke up, I went to go into my parents' room because I had heard like yelling and and all kinds of noise and so I went to push the door open and I was met with resistance I think he was standing there I don't think my mom was I kind of remember my mom being in the crack of the doorway a bit and so I, I saw her but I didn't see him and so and then my younger brother just out of a horror movie standing in the hallway just screaming and he was little and so then I ran straight to our home phone, right? And so I ran there, um, picked up the cordless. And at that time in our rural community, we don't have 911. You had a seven digit number you had to call. And so, but I totally screwed up because for so long, my parents had been telling me if there's an emergency, never alluding to what the emergency was, just making sure, right? So I tried to dial 911 and I dialed 011 and then I saw he was running towards me. So I dropped the, well, I didn't know who it was, right? And so I dropped the phone. Um, it was just a blur at who was coming towards me and instincts had me run away. So I ran and I hid in the basement. My younger brother and him and my mother come down. I'm hiding in my brother's room and I can hear him. He's getting mad. Where are they? He started losing his mind. My younger brother finds me and I was like, no, no, no. Like, no, don't pull me out. Don't pull me out. And uh, so he wanted to take me out. And so then he did. I remember looking at myself in the mirror, like what is happening? I, I can feel myself. My only memory of it as a child of actually shaking and being like, what's happening? Like I was just in shock. And um, 
pulled me out and he started losing his mind because now he can't find my brother. So he wants to know where my brother is, it's my older brother. So he wants us to look. And he tells my mother, if you can't find him, you're going to have to pick which one of your kids I'm going to kill. And, and so my mom was like, no, no. And so as soon as he said that, I was like, I'll look, I'll look, I'll look for him. So I started looking around the, the room for him and we couldn't find him anyway. And so then my mom whispers to me on the stairs, you stay down here and you call for help. And I was like, okay. And she's like, we're going to go upstairs. I'm, you know, most positive. She just wanted to separate us from him as well. So they went upstairs and I went to call 911 um, from the phone that was downstairs and it was ripped out of the wall. And I thought it would get electrocuted if I plugged it in. I didn't know. I never plugged it in the phone before. Right. I never had to. Yeah. And so where I am for the phone and where my brother's room is, my brother's room is directly left from the phone. And that's where we went. To the right of me is the stairs, the very top of those stairs. You can see in, in my mind, my memory, I can see it. It is the door to outside. They would have no idea. It's a giant L shape. So where they were in the house was on the total opposite side of the house. Mm -hmm. Like, I think now my mom probably thought we had possibly could have gotten out at that time. There's no way he would never have heard us. He would never have heard us yeah. at all. So we fell asleep in my, my older brother's bed waiting. So this is about 4.30. Now what's happening on the outside of the house, my older brother makes it to our neighbor's house. These are my parents' best friends, um, my best friend's parents, and they call the RCMP at 2.30 in the morning. That's the first 911 call goes in, right after my brother escaped. At 2.30, that 911 call goes in. The dispatcher's gets all the information. My brother says he went upstairs. I heard a gunshot. My brother, my younger brother, my younger sister are in the house. I heard my mother scream and I heard the gunshot go off. That dispatcher, she calls the chain of command. So she calls the constable to tell him what's happening. And then that those two officers have to call their, the, the, their seniority, like the person above them, right? to tell them what's happening. So we had Carson Scott on the phone. He said that Andre Ducharme has entered their house and he has a rifle and he heard a gunshot go off. Um, his younger siblings are in the house with him. Okay, you two go out there. This is what the, RCM, this is what the, the boss says. You go out there and you see if you can get him to come outside and talk to him. Trying to get him to come out to talk. Call me when you get there. And then at that time, that officer is the one who should call for a hostage negotiator because he's the one that would have that authority. And he should also be calling the other RCMP office in the other community because that's just the way it should have gone. Like the, just the events should have unfolded that way. Instead, he went back to bed. He went back to bed. And he fell asleep before he made any phone calls. Oh, yeah. So at 3.30, my brother and my parents' best friend call again. It's been an hour since the first call went in asking, where are they? They are still not there. So now we're still waiting. At this point, we have, I've already gone through all of those with all the events in the house. 
about, I think it's like 5.30 in the morning. Those officers now come to my brother and take my brother to bring him to another town to ask him questions. How far, so you had said there were like the towns were like 20 and 40 minutes in either direction. So it was one of those. So that's where the actual station is. Those officers had to drive from Winnipeg to the station to get everything they needed and then come to us. But at that point, so they did come to our house, but they stayed outside of the house and they couldn't get him to come out. So then the 911 dispatcher calls my mom while we're sleeping and my mom answers the phone and she says, hello, hi. She's pretending like it's not a 911 dispatcher. I'm, I'm a little busy right now. Can you call me back in the morning? And the 911's like working through it, right? Are you okay? No, I'm not. Um, but can you call me back in the morning? Like my mom keeps saying that. Okay. Um, is your, is your, has your husband been shot? Uh, I don't know. And so this whole conversation is happening. They can't get her to come out. Well, those RCMP officers at one point say like, we can't get Cherry to, like, we can't get him to come out. We can't, you know, like, we don't know what's happening in the house. And uh, does he have a gun? Yes. Um, Are you hurt? No. Has he hurt you? Yes. So she's, they never ask where, you know, now I think about it. Um, they never ask about us, like where we are in that phone call. Mm-hmm. So at 4.30, we come upstairs and I go to push my bedroom door open. And um, I hear my mom say, why do you have to shoot me? You already shot me in the eye. I was never corrected on this until last year when I myself my family was always very open. I've read all the articles. I've seen all the newspaper articles. I remember sitting on my grandma's lap, coloring, drawing on his face on the newspaper. We were always, always open about everything that had happened. I mean, I lived through it. You can't not have me be a part of the conversation, but um, no one ever corrected me when I said that. Not even the RCMP officer, when I gave my statement after everything. My mother was shot in the arm and I did not know this my entire life. Uh, And so she was, she was shot in the arm. And then I went into my parents' room. I call 911 at one point, the 911 dispatcher hangs up on me. I call 911 asking for three three ambulance. Uh, I I speak to some of the RCMP officers eventually um, about where we are in the house, but that doesn't happen until, so at 4.30, we go upstairs, I go through all that. I look over and I see my, I call on my parents' bed to call 911 and I see my dad laying beside me and I think, oh my gosh, he's sleeping. So I start shaking him like, how is he sleeping? Like, wake up. I genuinely did not know that he had, he was shot. Um, he was shot in the, the right cheek and was killed um, instantly when he had went upstairs. So the gunshot that went off, he had killed my dad right away. Um, and then whether he did or my mom, there was a, sh- they just put the sheet over him. So I didn't see anything of, at all of my dad. And then I just continued to call 911. My brother and I were in that room together. 
my younger brother and I. And just after um, six, around 6.30, my mom was trying to leave my bedroom and he shot my mom in the shoulder and with a 22 caliber, um, the bullet spins. And so it severed her, her spine and cut off her oxygen. And then she, she died like almost instantly. So she was half laying out of our, my bedroom. Um, so I could see her, I could see her from the waist up lying in the hallway. Uh, and then I, I continued to call um, again. At one point, I took the phone off the receiver because um, I was so worried he was going to come into the room. Because at one point, the alarm goes off, the RCMP are calling, 911 dispatchers trying to call me back. So the, the sound of the phone was terrifying to me to hear that he would come in there yeah. uh, as soon as he had killed my mom he sat down basically and turned the gun and, and shot himself in his left cheek and killed himself instantly and so we um sat in that room waiting for police to come at six in the morning those rcmp only set up at the town next to us about 10 minutes, I think it's exactly about eight minutes away. Um, they set up a station there, a command post in another town, not even in our community. They didn't actually make it to our community until after my mom was killed. They came outside of our house with the SWAT team at um, seven in the morning and still waited outside. And, and the first call was made at like 2.30. Yeah. My grandpa called me from the command post with the RCMP, my father's father asking me, where are you? Where's your dad? Where's your mom? Where's he? And so I told them where everyone was, but I didn't know what was happening. You know, it's really weird to me. Like I think back and I, if I said my mom was right in front of me and if he wasn't there in front of me, you know, they so there was a whole inquiry about the police misconduct because they don't actually enter our home until 8.30 in the morning. They didn't want to send dogs in because they were fearful that dogs don't pick up just a scent at this time. I'm sure they do now. But at that time, their argument was that they would, if they saw one of us first, they would attack. So whoever they saw first is who they would attack. So they couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't be one of us that would be attacked. So they came in at 8.30 and they just announced themselves, police, police, RCMP, uh, drop your weapon. And then instantly um, you hear them say, this one's gone, this one's gone, this one's gone. It's, then we are literally sw swept up. My... Um, my guy best friend's dad was one of the um, paramedics and then one of my girlfriend's father was the other paramedic and they carried us out. Um, they threw blankets over our head and, and carried us out of the house. Yeah, and I just saw the snow on the ground and I heard a voice and I thought, oh my gosh, it's Carson. Because the whole time I thought Carson was, I thought my older brother was dead somewhere, that he just wasn't telling us where he was. So he had been taken though to be questioned, like away from all of this. Yeah. 
he was questioned. So my older brother was actually questioned as being a suspect as a part of it for letting him into the house. So the age of 17, my brother was questioned without the RCM, without a parent, without an adult. Without any guardian, yeah. Any guardian, and they turned it on him. Had they come sooner, had they just left him where he was and asked him all their questions, like there's so many things that could have unfolded differently if it was done differently. Mm-hmm. Well, with how far away things are, because you're not in a city. No. That they would take him somewhere and not just in, with like this kind of a domestic dispute with guns and things like this. I, that That's just insane. I mean, there's so many parts of it. I mean, the RCMP officer going back to sleep after he'd been dispatched. Yeah, I heard that correctly. Yes, we yeah. all heard that correctly. He is. He was the one. He was mostly one. Uh, I mean, the, the entire force was under, like, on it in the inquiry. His um, his misconduct in the inquiry was questioned the absolute most. Uh, he continued to be an RCMP officer after. Actually, he's a. What explanation was offered for that, if any? There, there is a case, and I wish I had it like fresh on my mind that he was also in charge of another hostage negotiation. And I think it went like awry as well. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's such an awful story. And I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of speechless. I mean, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. And yet it was, mm-hmm. right? So he did let my mom write a note that night. My mother wrote it in pencil crayon that she wanted us to go to her sister. So we um, had to move to Ontario. My family fought for us to stay there. Our community did, like they wanted us to stay. Mm-hmm. But at that point, there was there was no... You couldn't fight like that was it was my mom's will essentially right yeah it was like her dying wish too yeah yeah I mean (laughs) once if I tell you guys what happened after with with my aunt you my mom would not have wanted us to to come uh to Ontario I actually didn't stay at my aunt's very long my younger brother did I moved in with my grandmother so my mom's mom just down the street And uh, my older brother, obviously, he aged out. He turned 18, so he moved out on his own. I fought really hard to go back to Ontario, and my guardian allowed me to at the age of 14. To go back to Ontario? Ontario Sorry, back to Manitoba. Yeah. And she allowed me to, and I had to do it all behind my grandmother's back. So I literally had to pack a bag one night, and my, my aunt got me on a plane and sent me back to Manitoba. I'm very close with my grandmother. So I'm, you know, so grateful we reconnected after, but I did, I really wanted to move back and I, and I did. And, uh, and did you still have family that you were able to stay with then? Yeah. Okay. So when I first moved there, I ended up living with an aunt. Uh, it was not a pleasant situation. So I actually moved in with my parents, best friends, the house that my brother ran to. Um, and so I called them mom and dad now and 
yeah, they took me in. My kids call them um, Amer and Papere for grandma and grandpa. Like they are, they're very much in, in my family still. Yeah. And they are my family. So yeah. not still, they are my family. But uh, we came to find out after I moved back from Manitoba to Ontario. My grandfather wasn't doing well. And I was turning 18. My parents did have um, life insurance. So I went, picked up my aunt and we were going, not many people know this part of the story. We went to go to the bank to go like officially get my life insurance. And I was their life insurance. And I was going to go to university with that money. And my aunt told me on the, as we merged onto the highway, there's no money. I spent it all. So my mother's sister who my mom wrote in her dying wish that she wanted you to be cared for by she took all of my younger brother's money as well spent all of it and actually claimed bankruptcy as well she had just totally spent it all wow yeah. At the time it was like devastating. Cause I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, how can I go to university? How can I like start my life? But my goodness, I am so, I don't want that many anyway. Like I didn't, that is my, my older brother did receive his money. And a lot of people will tell you my brother spent it faster than he got it because he wanted nothing to do with that money. He didn't. Mm-hmm not want it I see I remember how he spent it and he had no interest in it whatsoever and I think now who knows where I would have went what if I would have left this place what if I would have went somewhere else for school so for me personally with my story I'm sure like you guys have known from hearing me share is I believe everything for me has unfolded in the way that it it had for a reason not for a purpose, but for a reason of there is, it gives me a different perspective on things. It allows me to see like, what if, you know, that the what if and, and shift the narrative of the whole story. So for me, that was not whatever, to, you know, it's not it going to make at that change time though. Like talk about adding insult to injury. Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more insulted from my mom. Not for me. Yeah. I could care less. Yeah. Right. And when you, when you first at nine moved to Ontario, I know you were moving from like a Métis community. Mm -hmm. Did you have that opportunity and that connection to your culture when you moved to Ontario? No. So I didn't, I couldn't. Um, my grandmother tried here like a little bit. She's so my mom's side is, is not Métis. My, my grandmother just isn't, she just didn't know what to do. So she tried to connect me, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very political as well. Like provincial Métis communities. I belong to MMF. So I belong to the Manitoba Métis Federation. Also, that's where my lineage is from. I am not to say that I wouldn't be welcomed here in within Indigenous communities, but especially at that time, it was really hard because it was, you know, like you had to kind of almost be a part of that community to be involved in things. Now it's not so much like that. I mean, there are things I should, if I wanted to, you know, 
do something or be part of a program, I may have to be an Ontario Métis Nation member, um, but I would never give up my, my Manitoba Métis Federation. That would be like giving up my mm -hmm. ancestors. I would just right. never do that. But yeah, so I didn't have that connection here. So I really wanted to go home for it. I wanted to go back and I did. I actually went before I even moved back. I went home every summer. I was I was gifted um, that connection still. So that was really important. But um, we never received proper post-traumatic care. We, my older brother, my younger brother and I had done play-based therapy as far as I can remember, like maybe two times. I knew what they were doing. I had no interest in it. My younger brother had night terrors, really bad night terrors. I did yeah. not display anything um, like that. My uh, older brother, he aged out. And so he never really received any support. Mm, so no. was this support, was this when you were still in Manitoba or you were brought immediately to we were, Ontario? We were brought here. We were given zero support from the end of January until the end of February, until we moved here. Not a single anything of, of mental support at all for an entire month after everything we witnessed, not one thing. At the age of 29, my older brother committed suicide. And I imagine some of this trauma probably yeah. was a part of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you would agree. Okay. My whole world was rocked. Losing my mm -hmm. parents obviously was hard, but I feel like because I was nine, I don't know, it just wasn't the same. When I lost my older brother, it was I, I myself physically wanted to die I felt like I was dead inside after he died mm -hmm. and then it hit me I was driving down the street and I saw people walking and I thought oh my god life moves on like it still moves on just because I'm feeling like this doesn't mean everyone else isn't moving on and uh, yeah, sure enough, it kind of just hit me that I have to like keep moving on because no one's going to freeze. No one's going to stop. Like it's, this is all, I remember being hyper aware at his, at his service after his funeral, looking around at people and I got in a, I, I remember I got in a very um, depressed state at the, at the end of the, like the luncheon, you know, like the gathering afterwards, because I thought they're all going to be gone. I'm not going to have all this support around me. I'm not going to see my brother's friends the way I have for years and years, because he's here, this is going to disappear. And that's like, just killed me as well. Yeah. And then I, just lived my life after that. Like my, my younger brother was here and I uh, met my husband. I mean, I had already met my husband at that point and, and we have our kids now. And then in 2017, my cousin messaged me. Um, I still have the message on Facebook. And she said, you know, they're doing your, your mother and your father's names came up in a professor's thesis around the national inquiry for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Maybe if you feel comfortable, you could reach out and share your story. I was like, sure, do you think it's gonna help? And I'm like, I'll help in whatever way, like if it's gonna bring change. 
She was like, yeah. I was like, okay. So I reached out to them and I remember saying, yeah, you know, you know, I'll share my story any way I can to help change completely unaware of where everything was going to go with my life. And so in 2017, um, they flew me out to Winnipeg so that I could be at home with my community and, and just be surrounded by all the love out there. And I testified, I shared my story. And then in 2019, I just, sorry, in 2017, then I started like just becoming more and more aware of the inquiry, hearing other people's testimonies about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Because let me tell you, I had zero idea how my story was in any way related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I did not get it. I had total imposter syndrome because I thought, well, my mom's not Indigenous, but my dad is, but it's not about men. So then in 2019, my, uh, I got a phone call asking me if I would join the National Family Advisory Circle from one of the commissioners. And I said, yes, any, again, any way I can help. Like, I'm totally unaware of really like the, the beautiful honor that it is that I'm, I'm being involved in this whole process. And uh, so I said, yes. And so I got to journey with um, other family members and survivors um, and the commissioners. And then at the closing ceremonies, when, in fact, that's the, the family circle, when we handed over the final report to Justin Trudeau and the, and the nation with other families and survivors, it hit me as I was sitting in the audience. Oh my gosh, I'm the girl. Like that's intergenerational trauma. This is all of it. Like my, that's not normal. What happened to my story? I just always assumed like, you know, people are like my whole life. I'm telling you guys, I've told so many people my story. So to me, it was just like, quote, normal. That's what my life was, right? Yeah. And it just mm -hmm. dawned on me in and through that whole process, like, oh my gosh, like the system has failed my family so many times. And then that was it. I just decided that I was going to continue to tell my story and bring change in any possible way mm -hmm. that I could. Um, mm -hmm. However, that might be like, if it's just me sharing my story and someone hearing it and uh, learning about MMIW and what it is, so be it. But mm -hmm. however that change might come, I'm, I'm here for it. I think there's, you know, there's so much education I think that still needs to happen around MMIW. And there's so many people who were saying MMIW that might be listening that don't even know what we're saying. So it's um, <laughs> missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, right? Correct? Yes. Yeah, I just, <laughs> just in case. And you are, you're running a fundraiser currently? Yes, yeah. Yes, um, tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, did we hit it? We did. did. We did. Yeah. You hit it. <laughs> okay. What do we hit? Tell us. <laughs> $30,556. My phone has blown up in this conversation. That is so amazing. I have goosebumps. Fallon just opened the <laughs> fundraiser just over a week ago from when we were recording. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the fundraiser I started was Celebrate Indigenous Resilience um, 38. 
So in September, this is where it gets really confusing for some people. <laughs> in September, on September 16th, I will be one day older than my father when he died. So my actual birthday is in December. And I'm so glad I did not wait until December to do this or leading up to December because I thought that's not the day I'm celebrating. I'm not celebrating me. This is like where it gets like muddied for some people. I'm, I am celebrating me, my resilience and being here. Yes. But I am celebrating the fact that that one day, that one day is three lives more than anyone else in my family. So on September 16th, I will officially be one day older than my father when he passed away, uh, making me the oldest member, member of my immediate family. So I'm raising money and right that's now. Special. That's yeah. so special. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew that I was going to be um, swallowed up by grief and pain from that day. Mm-hmm. The A week ago when I pushed send on the GoFundMe, I um, nearly didn't push it because of the uh, emotions and trauma I was going through at, at feeling the realness of, of the, what that day is. Yeah. And so the funds will be split between two Indigenous organizations. One is called Abbey House. It's a transitional home for Indigenous women with or without children. Right now during COVID, they can't actually have the women in the house because of COVID. But the beautiful thing is they've been able to support women outside and um, they're helping women get into their own places. So first and last month's rent, furniture, everything that they need, like down to Mm -hmm. underwear, you know what I mean? So it's such a, an amazing process and just organization in general. And these are small organizations. This is what I really want people to understand. They don't like this is money. huge. Yeah. Oh, when I met with, I met with one of the the women from the organization today. She made me feel so good about everyone's money going to her organization. That made me feel good. Made me feel good about what's happening for the organization, right? right? And so, and then the other half of the money is going towards the MMF. That's the Manitoba Métis Federation, but the St. Asash local. So that's my community. And uh, it's going to go towards Indigenous youth there. I want to honor my nine-year-old self. Um, And and it's, you know, I don't, I would love to just be a part of the journey of where the funds go. I don't have anything specific, but when I'm dreaming up of, of what brings change, it's also giving access to women and youth um, culture right? Because, because that's something that was taken from me mm-hmm. that I had to now go back and get myself. And yeah, uh, yeah so that's where all the funds are going to be split between those two. And it's going until September 16th. And, you know, heck, I don't know, I might have to up it. Like, am I, gonna I was going to say, you're going to have to set a higher to. goal. You are going to have to, you can <laughs> set, you can keep changing it. Right. As I know. you get closer to it, you can keep changing it. So yeah. well, I did change it twice already. It was originally thirty eight hundred, then ten thousand, and now you're, I had a great push me. Yeah. To well, do I think 000. I think when you up it next, it has to be at least fifty. Yeah. Same. That's 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 uh, what I think. Um, that that's 
so amazing. And it actually speaks to me because in March, I will be actually one day older than my husband when he died. And, and that was something like when I turned 44, I was like, I'm almost, I'm as old as he was, and I will be older than him next year. And that feels really heavy. And it's kind of speaks to this whole podcast, you talking about that and looking at that mm-hmm. makes me feel less alone in feeling like that's a big deal. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I love what you're doing with it. I think that's so inspiring. I think it's fantastic. And I've, I've been seeing, I follow you on, on Instagram and I've been seeing you doing all kinds of uh, doing radio shows and podcasts and appearing everywhere and just raising awareness because I grew up in Toronto. I'm Canadian. I was born here. I've lived here my entire life. And I would say the first time I ever heard about MMIW was probably maybe five years ago. And that's because I listened to a CBC podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it, which was called Finding Cleo. Mm -hmm. And there were, I believe, two seasons. And one season really dealt with missing and murdered Indigenous women. And the other season dealt with the 60s scoop, which I'd also never heard of before. And I'm Canadian and I consume Canadian media and I watch Canadian news. And the fact that, you know, I hadn't heard of it until I was a full-fledged grown up is such a disservice, I think. And it's kind of breeds so much ignorance that around, around indigenous people's issues. Yeah. Um, so I think when I was in middle school, I had a teacher who like fully taught us about residential schools and we did a whole unit. It wasn't just like a one-off mention. We studied it for weeks and um, that would have been in probably 91. And I had no idea that I had an, what would have been at that time, I guess, considered a very progressive teacher because I meet so many people my age who had never heard of it yeah, until recently, because now of course it's all over the news. Right. It's unfortunate how much we don't know. Yeah. But it's designed that way. And now people are hearing about residential schools, but are they hearing about the other issues? Or are they also tying it together? And are they tying it together? Are they understanding the impacts and the, the intergenerational trauma yeah. uh, the colonization has played on all of these aspects of mm-hmm. residential schools, MMMIW, like bringing it all together to really understand how Indigenous people have come to you know, to some of these terrible circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exactly this idea of generational trauma, I think is one that is not either taken seriously or even like acknowledged Mm -hmm. because systemically it's white people and we don't have that. And it's not to say that we don't like entirely, but not, we we're the ones perpetrating it Mm. or if you are also going through some sort of intergenerational trauma as settlers um, there's also because of colonization 
um, more of this, like put it on the back burner kind oh, of. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. No, these conversations are so important. And again, I didn't grow up in Canada. So a lot of this is definitely new since I've lived here and actually had children in school here. My son was very lucky to actually have a teacher in grade one who was doing a master's, I believe in indigenous studies, or I'm not sure exactly what it was. So she, she did a lot. And actually when I told him, I was like, you know, I have a podcast interview tonight. I need to do do some work for it. And I was telling him, he was like, can I listen? I'm like, I don't know if you can listen to this one. Maybe after some of it, you can, but he, he was like real. And I kind of, I love that because if we're able to educate the kids, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously from an adult level to make real change, we need to do that, but there's an element to really have lasting change when we make learning about the indigenous people of Canada, part of what the kids are learning and it's just normal. And it's a part of being Canadian. Mm -hmm. Um, It gives me a little bit of hope that there's some lasting change that will come. Yeah. It's coming. We just have to keep talking about it, right? Yeah, yeah. But absolutely. I love how you're you're living up to your name. Yes, I mean that's a big honor to receive my spirit name. So I definitely don't want to let that elder down, right? No, no. Or my ancestors, because honestly, like, so so my name would be would be a part of me, right? And so mm-hmm. um, part of of my creation, and so I don't want that to to fall. I don't want to fall short of it. Well, I I don't think you're falling short. (laughs) For all (laughs) intents and purposes, I think having these conversations, you know, you're, you're, you're being loud and, and, you know, you're part of a, I want to say commission, but it's not a commission, the inquiry that national inquiry, national inquiry that presented to the prime minister, like you're, you're doing it. And and you (laughs) truly have, I mean, it's so inspiring how you have turned such a traumatic life experience, mm-hmm. traumatic life, ex- like life experiences more than one into something that can have such a lasting and positive impact. Thank you. I don't, it's so strange for me to say thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It's like, it is. this compliment really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know it's like any... I, this happened to me and I'm doing this with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, thinking. I get it. <laughs> if there was one thing that people could take from your story. What would you hope that would be? I'm going to do positive on it and I'm going to go with the fundraiser and just say that uh, Indigenous people are still here and we're resilient and yeah, you can't take that away from from us. Yeah, try as you might because mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's fair to say that they've tried right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. They tried to strip you of your culture. They tried to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm the child that should have been assimilated. Yeah. It's like the dream yeah. situation. I would have yeah. been assimilated, completely lose my culture and yeah. never hold on to it. And my children wouldn't have it either. Yeah. And to see you find your way back raise to really it. strong indigenous children now. Yeah. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, and it's, I don't know, it's amazing that your, your community by the age of nine had such an impact on you that you knew that you had to fight for it and hold on to it. Mm -hmm. 
So anybody listening, please go find Fallon on Instagram and click on the link in her bio. Yes. And, and it will whatever. take you to her GoFundMe and make a donation because she's making waves and making a difference. And it's, it's so important the work that she's doing. So thank you so much, Fallon. And it'll all be linked in our show notes too. Oh yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Marcy, you guys, that's thank you. And Michif, thank you. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. And make sure to find us on Instagram at nowwhat underscore podcast. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.